Brilliant. And your thought for the, the day, was it a couple of days ago? Wednesday, yeah. Wednesday. Um, I just wondered if it would be a good thing maybe to... Would you mind redoing that for us? <clears throat> Can you be John Humphreys? Well, <laughs> I'm pleased to say no. <laughs> OK, I just happen to have it here. <laughs> um, just imagine that you're having your cornflakes and that it's 7.48. I will say good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's kind of weird having everyone in the box with me. If you were searching for spiritual insight, the last place you'd think to look would be in the psychiatric wing of your local hospital. But it's in just such a place that I've recently learned some unexpected truths about life, God, and myself. A few weeks ago, I was buying a paper at the corner shop when a man came towards me and he shook my hand. He told me his full name and he said that he liked smoking and cars. He then insisted that I come to his place for a cup of tea. His place was the hospital, just a few yards from my house. So I set off the next day taking gifts of tobacco and a car magazine, feeling pleased about the good turn I was performing. Not only was I making a sacrifice of time, I was going to impart some clarity, some normality, maybe even some healing. My attitude was that of the person about to dispense some kind of blessing. My new friend was in the garden. A nurse kindly made us some tea and we were joined by two other patients. I suddenly found myself being asked the most direct and uninhibited questions. Are you religious? What are your credentials for being here today? Are you married? Does your wife mind you growing a beard? <laughs> I tried to answer them. I have faith, but I'm not religious. I'm here because I've been invited. And yes, my wife would probably kiss me a lot more if I didn't have a beard. <laughs> then, after about half an hour, one of the patients said, do you know what matters in life, Rudin? What's that, I asked. That you love and know that you are loved. And he quoted from the first letter of John, God is love, and whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. I agree, I said. But before I left to get back to my normal life, he advised me, remember, be slow to chide and quick to bless. Now, I don't want to poeticize mental illness or underplay its prevalence. A recent survey states that one in four of us will experience it in some form. And the fact is, my scripture-quoting friend is not allowed to go anywhere without a nurse and has been hospitalized for 20 years. I have no illusions about his vulnerability or his dependence, but the whole encounter challenged my assumptions about where honesty and insight might be found blurring the boundaries between what's healthy and what's sick, what's sacred and what's profane. I shouldn't be surprised Jesus himself was denounced as a madman. At the time, some said he was demon-possessed and raving mad, and why listen to him? Today, when looking for a spiritual encounter, we are still more likely to head for the professionally holy, to the churches and cathedrals with their comforting rituals, rather than the company of the broken and the unwell. Despite this, I've been back to the hospital and I intend to keep going. Not because I've got anything to give, but simply because I've discovered a quite unexpected source of blessing. When you read that, it, it was as though that experience was genuinely surprising for you. It was, 
unexpected? Yeah, I mean, the whole encounter was unexpected. Um, I mean, sort of a little bit of the backstory to that was just actually thinking, praying, you know, wh where is the need around me? I live in an incredibly wealthy part of London. You know, there's lots of need clearly everywhere. But uh, I was sort of thinking about this, and I met this guy in the paper shop that very day of sort of thinking that. So I thought, well, I have to, I, I nearly said no, but I thought, no, he was so enthusiastic. I thought, no, I'll, I'll follow it through. And uh, went there, and he actually was pretty catatonic. He couldn't himself speak to me. It was his friend the, who was the scripture quoter. And he was amazing and very, very funny, as well as kind of full of these rather, um, you know, appetite sayings. Um, so yeah, it was, I wasn't looking for it. Um, I wasn't expecting it. No. I'm interested in your two, in your, both of your thoughts on this really. I, I guess a common response, um, it may or may not be verbalized in the clinic, um, is, a, is, a, is a why me sort of question. Um, you know, what, what has caused this to happen? What's the reason for it? And, um, you know, part of that is a response, I guess, a shock response to terrible, terrible events when patients are sick. But is, is that question, the why me question, I'm just interested in how it's asked in an increasingly secular society. Does it within itself contain um, still somehow an assumption of faith? I think it... it it often conceals an implicit metaphysic, if not a faith. Um, because one of the ancient um, ways of explaining suffering was as punishment. Um, it, it was the prevalent uh, message of the Hebrew scriptures until the book of Job, uh, a wonderful short story written 3,000 years ago, which doesn't explain suffering, but knocks that particular theory out of the ground. But it's still there. I used to get it as a priest, what have I done to deserve this, is what they say. Um, as though the universe is not just haphazard, it is malevolently directed. Um, you had Jerry Falwell uh, blaming 9-11 on gays and lesbians. God, uh, and he'd, he'd earlier said that God carefully prepared a virus, the HIV virus, intentionally to hit gay people. Um, I, I remember asking at the time, well, why hadn't he conceived a virus for arms manufacturers? Why, 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 just, why is it always sex that God aims his mm. bolts at? Mm. So, so there is a sense in which, behind all of that, there are these deep assumptions about the mystery of the universe, and some of them have a kind of disguised malevolence about them, and I think that one has yes. that dodgy past. I think that uh, the why me question is really another question, as you're suggesting in yes. a way, which is why anything. Right. I think it's completely reasonable, personally, to say, why am I here? Yes. Ask the question. Yes. I'm slightly alarmed by people who don't ask the yes. question, uh, personally, because um, I'm thinking, surely that's an obvious question to ask. Yes. I'm not saying that has to be an answer, but the fact is it's a question that's valid. And you and think the point of illness then prompts or any kind of crisis prompts well, the question specifically? It, it, yeah, it can do. I mean, it did in my case. Mm. Uh, you know, I came to faith sort of in my mid-twenties. Mm. Um, 
and I was sick. Mm. And so they've always sort of gone together for me. Mm. Um, I mean, I think that, that that question comes with our humanity. We, we've heard lots of talks about dogs. Uh, I, too, have a non-human companion called Daisy. Um, and, and I know that she'll be expecting me home tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> but, but what she's not doing today, she's not in a hall with other dogs in the street asking questions about doghood. <laughs> but, but we are, because it comes with, with our territory. I mean, we ask, wh where did it all come from? What are we? Is there any meaning? And that's why I think religions and science and all of those, those things get invented why we have this endless turmoil of debate. Yeah. It comes with these big brains and the self-consciousness that we've been gifted with. And you, you talk about that in your book in terms of enterprises, for example, such as, and you know, in saying this, I guess we're, we're approximating versions of truth rather than necessarily saying this is the case, but for example, religion, science are perhaps ways of answering that question and dealing with the uncertainty. You talk about the difficulty of, um, I mean, of uncertainty. T.S. Eliot says humankind cannot bear very much reality, and that reality is one of contingent, difficult things and uncertainty. Is, is that a, so are those, share, are those, is that response, those differing responses to the same existential difficulties? I like the dogma list. Mm. I wrote down, my dogma always knows when I'm coming. <laughs> but, um, but um, I think that uh, one of the things that's really struck me about today, which I've found quite interesting, is that we've, there's been a sort of false duality going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, I suppose it's connected to this compartmentalization, which we're all trying to break down a bit. Mm. Um, you know, body and soul. Um, you know, faith and doubt. Mm. I mean, Richard and I have talked about this before, mm. you know, faith and doubt. Are they opposites mm. or actually are they actually the same thing? Mm. Um, and I think a word that hasn't been used yet, because probably it needs its own medicine unboxed, is love. Mm. And it's a tricky word mm. and, it, <laughs> and it's a big word. But um, back to my guys, in the hospital, mm. the thing that that I really encountered was an affection and a kindness. There was a, obviously a brokenness there. There was a kindness and an affection, and that was really incredibly powerful. And um, even the discussion about how doctors treat patients mm. is connected to love. It's about how you see people. Love thy neighbor as thyself is, of course, empathy, mm. really. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, that is a, in one thing that it is, is a description of empathy. And so I think where that has a place in all of this is interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe we have actually been discussing it without using the word. Um, so I think that that's something that um, can be brought in to this whole discussion. And are faith and doubt then, I mean, I, I can accept a kind of yin and yangness attached to them, but are they the same thing really? I, interested in your thoughts on this, Richard, in, um, in terms of conviction, mm. uh, convictions around certainty as perhaps made manifest in certain descriptions of science or organized religion, can, um, well, do they run the risk really of um, stemming 
or uh, suppressing any kind of genuine engagement around uncertainty and human flourishing. I, your, the poem that you read, uh, I think, when you were talking to A.C. Grayling, the Yehuda Amachai poem. Oh, yes, from the um, place where we are right. That one. From the place where we are right, flowers will never bloom in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard, but doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plough, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. Um, and I think that what I would say about the, the faith-doubt thing is that I think they're coactively descant on each other. Mm. You don't need faith where you're without doubt, and so the opposite of faith is certainty. Um, and I think it relates to mm. the discussion that we had this morning about paradigms and the way science operates, Kuhn's paradigms, is the going thing you put your trust in um, uh, Ray used the word belief this morning uh, until it's disproved or, or, or until you move on and you put your belief in another set of another constellation of facts and experiments. And I think that the trouble with religion, uh, which I've given my life to and which still fascinates me and I'm still a religious person, I think the trouble with religion is that like every other human institution and like all of us, it can't live with the uncertainty of that way of being, that kind of intellectual modesty. And what it does, it hardens itself into a kind of permanent science that it calls theology, dogma, and says these truths are permanently true for all time. Um, and it, it's not so bad when they're kind of general truths like love is greater than hatred, kindness um, and compassion are at the root of all of these things. It actually tries to harden unknowable things into a kind of, of, of reality. And the thing that's fascinating me today is a kind of amateur theologian, is the way I now see science doing what religion has done for centuries. When I became chairman of the Scottish Arts Council, I noticed artists doing it as well. Right. So it must be human. Mm -hmm. it, it's this, this need to create dogmas that we fight each other over and persecute other with, so there must be something in us that finds uncertainty threatening. Mm. And the one thing you do with a vacuum is you fill it, and you fill it with a creed, whether it's science or theology. And I think that's what we need to move away from. It's actually a very boring way to live, because it's very unadventurous. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and sort of connected to that is this, again, uh, the, the, the need to measure things. Hmm. And um, how interesting that so many of the things that we've discussed today, imagination being one of them, you know, these things are so hard to measure. So much of what really matters is invisible. Um, and that is problematic for us. Um, and uh, I think just finding uh, a way to live with that, um, you know, but, you know, the, what is, what is the commandment? Is it love, love God with all your heart, heart soul, and mind, heart, and your neighbor as yourself? Heart, yeah. soul, and mind. Now, heart, soul, and mind, what does that mean? Hmm. What, I get the heart-ish, hmm. I get the mind, what's the soul? Hmm. We've sort of been, I've been scribbling triangles hmm. all, all today, hmm. as people have been mentioning different, when we, you know, the, the neuro, all the, all the talks, hmm. it's just, there's, there's, there's still something we can't see, what is it? Hmm. We'll call it dark matter for now, or we'll hmm. call it whatever. Hmm but there's something we can't see, what is it? Let's give it a name. Mm. But is it true, is it real, how do we know? Well, where, the thing where, where, where for me it gets interesting in faith, and maybe this is the same in medicine, is 
it's sort of praxis over exegesis, really. Kind of too much, there's, for me, my, my, my issue in my walk of faith is it's way too much exegesis and not nearly enough praxis uh, getting out. And in you fact, have to tell me in, what those mean. Well, it's in the doing of, it's in, it's in the doing hmm. that you discover whether right. it's true or, or not, right. or it, it takes on a meaning. Rather than the analysis, uh, yeah. And that must be the yeah. true for, for, for doctors, yeah. you know. It's, in it's the, doing the walk and not talking the talk. And, yeah. and what you often get in certainly the religion I know best, which is, Christianity, Ian e. Foster described it as poor little talkative Christianity. Yeah. It does a lot of talking, um, uh, a lot of bad talking in, um, in sermons and things. Can I come back to something that's, that's impressed me all through uh, this fascinating day? Uh, and we saw it in the last session um, with Charles and Tim. Uh, we saw it this morning um, with, with Rupert and Ray. And it's the possibility, and I live on the edge of it, I don't know the answer, which is why I'm not a believer in atheism or theism in that sense. It's the possibility um, that there might be something ultimate that we do not yet know about. Um, and so I'm particularly fascinated by this brain-mind thing. Um, is there a person that's not just my neurology? Um, am I just totally just my body, uh, and I clearly am that as well. But has something happened in us that's non-supernaturally transcendent? Mm. Is there not something that's happened to the universe through us? Elgar's cello concerto, Shakespeare's sonnets. Y you can't reduce these things to neurology. They have a kind of transcendence about them that doesn't have to be thought of as religious. And the thing I liked about the way Tim ended was he was almost passionate in his commitment to being. We are beings. We've got a body through which we are. Uh, get on with it. Enjoy it. Don't allow them to reduce it. But there's a wee bit in me that still thinks, and is there anything other than all of this? Because I'm still asking Leibniz's question, why is there something and not nothing? Um, and it's the asking of that question that keeps all of this stuff going. Mm. I think it's atheists answer confidently their, their belief is, no, there isn't. It's only us. It's only this. Theists answer it confidently. There is, and we know what it had for breakfast this morning. I think that, <laughs> that a much more exciting place is to be poised on the edge of the possibility of an ultimate meaning that we will never know being the limited creatures that we are. Mm. And it's a kind of an exciting, uncertain place to to stand on it, it's, it, you get a kind of vertigo, but it's, it's, not, it's not a bad place to be. No, it's a very, and and it, so in, interestingly there, because I was going to come on to this idea of hope, um, so if we, if we are suggesting that actually it's very, um, if, we're, if we're suggesting that religion or, or science are there to, in part anyway, this is in part, um, overcome this terror of uncertainty, um, what actually, I mean, well, one, is hope something that is of value? And if it is, and it's important, what ought we be to be hoping for? I mean, again, T.S. Eliot, hope would be hope for the wrong thing, mm -hmm. and love would be love of the wrong thing. What, so what, what would hope of the right thing be? Speaking in a secular sense, if that's possible, actually, for hope. I mean, for, uh, I, I can remember the moment I was coming down a hill in the Pentlands, and I can remember the moment when I ceased to want life after death, and it was enormously liberating for me. So all my hope became 
And, and Paul would have been appalled because he'd said, if I, if I hope only for this life, then of all men, am I the most miserable? No, Paul, you're the most miserable because um, <laughs> you're, 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 you're positing all your hope. I want life before death. Um, and I, I, I think that, that what's been coming up here today is that we've created these power-driven societies. We've heard that the poor are getting sicker in our society at the moment um, because of, of the politics of the powerful, the intellectually powerful, the economically powerful. So my hope is that we somehow develop a shared humanity with an open edge to the possibility of transcendence. And religion can help us do that at its best because it privileges mercy and forgiveness and compassion. Um, and going to, to the man who's on the other side of the road who's fallen among thieves, it's full of great stories. It's full of very compassionate beings. It's full of acts of mercy. There'll be people, as we speak, taking soup to homeless people on the embankment out of their religion. I may not buy their religion, but I do. I'm, I'm impressed by their love. So there are all these wonderful stories that we can all join in telling each other about hoping for the best and creating it now. And why we need to divide science against religion and bits of science divided against other bits of science. I hope we can work through that. Mm. It's a waste of time. <laughs> so in describing yourself now as still a religious person, would that be your, um, would that be your version of it? So through, through acts of love rather than necessarily um, yeah, I mean, adherence to a creed of any sort. Yeah, and yeah. that's what Jesus... I mean, yeah. in Matthew chapter 25, the empirical test of a Christian is not creeds, but it's feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, and visiting those in prison. It's utterly empirical. Yes. And, and the people that, that get sent to the other people are the creedally orthodox. And interestingly then, in, in our modern world, is that kind of... Um, care out there enough? I mean, is that something to hope for? Do, is that something that's a reality that we apprehend? Is there ground? I mean, I also remember you talking to A.C. Grayling and saying you were a cynic, that you, you, were, you were cynical about human nature. Is there grounds for hope about human nature? Yeah, as long as I'm not a cynic, I'm a realist. Human nature is a very flawed thing, um, which is why I'd, I'd I mean, I, I the only Christian doctrine I really passionately believe in is the doctrine of original sin because it, it's, it, 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 it shows that we are very flawed creatures capable of great self-delusion and cruelty to others out of our own fear. And so I think that anthropology is very, very realistic. But on the basis of that, you examine yourself, you get to know yourself, you try to overcome yourself um, and help others to do the same. And the, the whole thing points to more abundant living and more gracious, kindly behavior towards one another. And religion's got great stories f for that. Mm -hmm. But the thing that's loved, that I've loved about today are all these wonderful doctors talking about applying this um, to medicine. Mm -hmm. That's kind of new to me. I didn't know doctors were that sensitive. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> we're genuinely Apart amazing. from you. Um, <laughs> Well, we can, that's what more do we say after that? Um, really, I mean, I, you know, and I don't want to necessarily get too ground down in, in what a um, what versions of um, faith are necessarily the right one. But let, I mean, given that we were having that conversation just this morning with 
Rupert and Ray with regards to versions of science. Um, in fact, there's probably no need to shy away from that conversation, is there? Yeah, particularly if both of those enterprises are trying to uh, establish um, meaning and truth in the world. So is that enough of a version of faith? Um, for me, I, my, I, my question was, was really about the being that you, the, pos the positive being that you were describing earlier and whether that God, it, that, is there a God? You brought the God out? word in. I've used uh -huh. the God word. <laughs> We uh, haven't done God. Well, yet. we've got but 10 minutes. <laughs> but the question... <laughs> we don't do God. Um, Tony now does God. He does. He does now. Yeah, now God. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. He does. But he... Um, in fact, if you, if you ever... If, you, if you're ever bored, um, go onto the internet. There's a, there's a spoof website called Platitude for the Day. <laughs> They're real bastards, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Did the thought but, for today speakers end up on it? They're really good. Yeah. They spoof everyone's thoughts and they give them a platitudinous rating. Right. Noughts to five stars. Yes. And yeah. Actually, I don't think they really quite know what a platitude is, but their ratings are always, you know, quite harmful. Um, <laughs> and some, and, in, some, and I, I shouldn't read it because it's not good for the confidence, but <laughs> I, I did read one and it said, oh, God. Ridian Brook and his imaginary friend, I guess. <laughs> and actually, joking apart, when we were talking about imagination, I was sort of thinking, you know, again, you know, is it, would it be okay if God only existed in the imagination? I'm not saying that's where he possibly does only exist, but, you know, the, even the openness about... We're all talking about being open, but actually, that's not quite what's happening all the time. There's often actually... Everything's right but that. Mm. And if I'm being, I have to say, uh, it, it's probably cooler to be doubtful and unsure than it is to have a, a faith, perhaps, or even a degree of, maybe certainty is not the right word. So you, it's, it becomes a different issue um, and a different challenge. So, but again, the theory of that doesn't take you very far. It comes back to, you know, the Matthew 25, where were you when I was poor? Where were you when I was sick? Where were you? And I think it's interesting that you talked about original sin because if I'm, my, my view of the world is that the world is in, a terrible, is in terrible shape. Um, you know, when I went to uh, Africa five years ago with, with my family, I was asked to write this book about AIDS, about the Salvation Army's response to AIDS. I knew nothing about Salvation Army, I knew nothing about AIDS. And we lived for nine months in various places, and it was a pretty incredible journey. Mm -hmm. And it slightly undid me, actually. It slightly undid my view of... It didn't, change, it didn't undermine my faith. It just changed the practice element of it, I guess. And we saw lots of amazing things, and we saw lots of very pain, painful things. But I remember this one thing, which was... We, we were in this village, and you, the, the response to AIDS was so sort of it's it such a massively overwhelming problem that there, there wasn't the medicine there for it. So what they realised is the only way to respond was to get the whole community to respond. It's almost like the hospital had to get out of the building and go to the communities, much as the church had to do. Actually, the church. Why should people? How can people come to church? Get out of the building. Be the church. Be the doctors. So it, I saw this very close link between medicine and faith in operation. It, I, admittedly, I was with the Salvation Army, 
But that was really very powerful. But sometimes they had no, nothing to give mm. but their time. Mm -hmm. And you'd, you'd spend, I mean, when I first was there, I was walking hours and hours with these people. I'm thinking, God, this is terrible. What a waste of manpower. What do we do when we get there? But of course, after a while, I began to go, they're expressing a kindness. Actually, they've made a connection. There's some hope here. Maybe they've found something out. Maybe they can get drugs because they know that so-and-so lives near so-and-so. So it wasn't wasted, but my, my sort of Western empirical mindset was going, this is an invalid use of resources. It'd be far more effective if they did this. So I think the, the question was, what's the remedy? You know, is, that, is there a remedy? You know, is there a remedy for, if, 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 if we're all flawed, is there a remedy? Should there be a remedy? And priests and doctors maybe are in the business of the remedy. I don't know. Hmm. Is, there, is there an overlap there? I don't think there's an absolute permanent remedy uh, in the sense of, of uh, and I think that's, and politics and religion have been full of absolute theories that if applied will, will bring in the kingdom. Um, and they usually applied at the expense of, of, of um, uh, the poor and the weak, um, and they get exterminated in Nazi programs, or, the, or, or they die in, in the Chinese famines under Mao's great dogma, um, or uh, Stalin's purges. The danger of all of these big totalizing ideas is that they're invariably bad for people because they have to be applied against, against the, the untidiness of actual human living. Um, and therefore, I think that the best thing is to be not too thrilled to any particular theory. To, to, the ones that work, uh, William James was mentioned, and I'm a bit of a Jamesian pragmatist. I think that, that it, if, if it works in some sense, um, then go with it. D don't be too theological about it. And there's no doubt at all that, that faith works for a lot of people. My problem with faith is that it tended to claim too much and it transcendentalized cruelty in my own experience because the trouble with most of the big religions, they started a long time ago and they've frozen the social and cultural norms of those times. And because they were against, they, they had a, a view of the subordination of women. My God, the Church of England still can't make up its mind about women bishops. Um, and women have been out of, 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 of the dungeon um, in secular society for, for generations. They're only just beginning the debate about the gay thing. And that's going to take another 500 years. Um, and it's, that, that's the thing. And it, it's because religion claims these revelatory packages fell down from heaven intact, plastic wrapped, um, and impermeable to change. And we know that, that that's... That, that, that's not true. Uh, we know that they're historical documents. We know quite a lot about how they came to be written. We know they're full of wisdom and compassion as well as a lot of bollocks. And what you have to do, what you have to do is to separate the bollocks from the wheat. Um, and that's, that's extremely difficult for religious people to do. <laughs> Separating the bollocks from the wheat is something that happens That's in... That's an agricultural well, term yeah. in Scotland. <laughs> it also happens in particular clinics. In which, uh, <laughs> <laughs> takes hours and hours. Um, so what then is the responsibility or the moral duty of a um, religious person? I mean, really, now, one of your other um, thoughts was they talked about speaking truth to power... So, uh, presume, I mean, that uh, one assumes there that you have a, um, a handle on the truth and a, um, <laughs> are in a position to speak that 
So, I mean, I, I guess, I don't know whether this is a reasonable analogy or not, but Giles Fraser comes to mind. One, you know, whether that was a truth to the right power, etc., etc. Et yeah, when he's not tweeting. Um, <laughs> But tweeting what is, truth to power. <laughs> <laughs> tweeting truth to power. Yeah. What is, I mean, how, because that's, I mean, and there are clear resonances there with some of the debate we'll be having tomorrow around how beliefs and ideologies are manifested in political structures. <clears throat> I, I'm very nervous of this, this description, religious person. Uh, mm. I, I do really have a problem with it, mm. actually. Um, You're not going to beat me up, are you? No, but. No, but <laughs> If you know, we're either all spiritual beings or we're not. You know, the idea that some are and some aren't, I don't, doesn't really make sense to me. Whether, whether you nail your, you know, colours to a particular mass is is a different issue. But for me, is it's back to the it's back to the heart, body, body, mind, soul thing. Uh, you know what? So I know that's not answering your question, no, no, no. but I'm just it's just dealing with again because we're already compartmentalising mm, something mm, here, mm, mm. which we've been trying not to do. And we're trying to sort of find a way in. All right, well, where, let me, where does this fit in? So if we turn that around, and so, you know, some of the, the truths and beliefs we haven't talked about today are moral truths and beliefs as opposed to uh, mater material ones. And ostensibly, you can come across moral answers through reason, rationing, uh, sorry, rationality and reason, not rationing. Um, is... You know, is there such a thing then as secular moral truth? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, Lots of yeses. Yeah. There, there clearly is, but but there's some. I mean, when I go around doing things like this, um, <clears throat> maybe with the book I'm written, invariably someone comes up to me afterwards and said, "I've left the church. I belong to the Church Alumni Association, which is a very growing demography." Um, but I miss coming together with other people I wouldn't otherwise meet. I miss the opportunity to be serious for about 60 minutes a week and to think outside my own immediate concerns. Um, and, and how can that be provided in a, a, a kind of deracinated society from which religion has been purged, in which we all tend to be atomized and at our own um, computers and things? Um, it's one reason why Alain de Botton started the School of Life, one reason why he wrote a book called Religion for Atheists, because he said religion carries good values, and when you dump religion, you dump the good as well as the bad. Uh, so maybe if you don't want to dump religion, you have to live with the bad because of the good. And I go to church because I need to examine my conscience at least once a week. I like being with other people. I had a similar experience to yours. Um, there are a lot of uh, people with mental health problems in the church I go to. Um, I, and you find that in, in, that's another one of the things that churches are full of. I was at St. Martin's in the Fields in, in Trafalgar Square a few weeks ago, and at the reception afterwards, um, about 50% of that congregation, the people at that reception, were all battling mental health problems, homelessness problems, and they were in church hmm. because, because they somehow implicitly knew They'll be open to us. We can go here. We know that because this guy, Jesus, said, come unto me, all ye broken hearted and down and outs. And the church, in a sense, still does that. There's no other place yes. that they have the right simply to walk in and be there simply because of their brokenness. Yes. Um, and I think that if you do away with all religion, you're going to lose a lot of that. You'll lose a lot of the crap, but you'll also lose a lot of the joy and the compassion. So why not live with a wee bit of crap for the sake of a lot of the glory? 
I think that's very powerful, particularly you know, the, the idea of the underprivileged, destitute, disprivileged being able to to use the mm. church. Um, there isn't a secular version of that. I mean, mm -hmm. we may come up with some examples, but I don't think they at all meet it in the same mm. way. Do you think yeah. to say about that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, just before we come on to some questions from the audience, uh, Richard, I was interested in your um, memoirs and your book about how um, there was a sense early on um, when you uh, entered the clergy of feeling as though you were pulling a confidence trick. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a sleight of hand going on. And more than that, not only were you pulling a confidence trick, but in fact, there was a sense that actually that's what people wanted from you. Mm -hmm. So a demonstration of an, mm -hmm. an act. Mm -hmm. it, so this, I mean, it's just an interesting point about some of the conversations happening comments earlier about patients wanting to connect with a human being as a doctor in a mm. consultation and this idea of trust. Uh, is that the case or actually do they want a confidence trick? I think the, the, the trouble with the ordained ministry uh, as it's kind of evolved is that it's become a receptacle for people's um, the stuff they don't do themselves, but they think someone should do it. Someone should be good and holy and never trouble with impure thoughts and all of that. Um, and so you put a collar around your neck, uh, around their, their neck, and you think that they are now immune from the flesh, from the heirs that flesh is heir to. Um, they also have no problems with believing um, impossible things before breakfast every day. Um, and therefore, they, they are somehow immune to all of this stuff. And I, I was very conscious of, because I've very flawed human being and struggled particularly with sex most of my life struggled with um, I was attracted to religion for romantic reasons I wanted to give my life away to some great purpose I didn't want to get manacled to a creed that came later but when you get ordained you have to swear to a creed you have to swear to a truth as though it were true for all time and what you do is you cross your metaphysical fingers um, and you behind your back as the bishop screwing the stuff into your head um, and you you, you, you say, well, it really is a metaphor, but I have to swear to it as truth. But metaphors are kind of truth, so okay, I can cope with that. Um, and th th what, what became increasingly difficult for me um, was, was to disguise my own fraudulence any longer. Um, and Paul knew about this. You know, he said that the clergy were deceivers, yet true. Um, and a lot of people do focus their what they think a priest is. You, you, someone would sit opposite you in the train and say, right, we've got 90 minutes before crew, prove the existence of God to me. Um, or people, you, 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 you'd, you'd visit a house and a wee boy would see you with a clerical collar and he wouldn't know what that was and the mother would say, that's for you to mind your P's and Q's. So, so you're a moral policeman, you were meant to be theologically impermeable and it became impossible. And it's why... Why the clergy are wonderful, but a lot of them get into this, you know the false clergy voice? You know that, the kind of thought for the day voice which you don't have? Um, but, um, you know, my brother Esau is an hairy man, but I am a smooth man. Um, you know, the, the kind of Alan Bennett. What and would you Jesus know, do if he that's right, Tottenham that's right, Yes, yeah, the Billy Connolly story, uh, uh, Nigel taking his his. his his, his son to a, a football match in Cest, and he's going home afterwards, Tottenham, and he said, Daddy, was Jesus a Tottenham Hotspur fan? 
You know, Nigel, in a very real sense, he was. You know, you, you, know, you, get, a, you get a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and, and, you, and you just want to liberate them all. Um, and it's, it's partly because they have to wear these uniforms. You know, that big hat is a snuffer. I mean, it's... Um, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm being irreverent now, but it's... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get rid of the mitre. Yeah. Uh, and if women do get ordained bishop in this country, I hope they will bend the mitre, because they look even more stupid than the men in it. <laughs> Does any, do any of the doctors in the audience recognise that, the, the voice that we kind of inherited around, I don't know, the age of 21, and everyone starts talking yeah. exactly the same way, and it's, it's almost like being in a sort of strange science fiction movie. And well, there's a role, there's a power role, which is similar, mm -hmm. priest and doctor, and it's a power, there's an exchange happening, which is... I mean, you could call it professional distance, I suppose, with mm. the doctor, which is problematic. Which mm. I mean, we were talking; everyone was talking about it earlier. And there's, you see, some people when they come to a doctor, they want their doctor to make them better, mm. be much smarter than them, mm. and get on with it. Mm. So, in a way, they're not looking for the humanity necessarily. Mm. Maybe better. It's a bonus if there's humanity there. But I think priests as well get into this trouble. It's like, ooh. Mm. There's a distance. I must maintain my distance. I, I'm, I, I must adopt a role, mm. which is which is problematic. Mm. I mean, it's stressful not being who you're meant to be. Yes, and it's stressful wearing a mask. Mm. Um, and we all do it. We all do it. Mm. I mean, you know, we don't have to be priests and doctors mm. to do that. No, but no. Um, though, they're interestingly both in Africa, the priest and the doctor. Mm. Wow, cool. that's that's yes. power. Yes, and that's that's a real problem, and incredibly easy to abuse. And, yes, um, of course there are lots of amazing people who don't, but it's it, that that separation, professional distance, is a, is is a real issue. And again, I wonder if there's a something that we can learn from each other. Yes, on that. and again in the balance of the authority. Sam, you know how bishops wear pectoral crosses. Hmm. Is that why doctors wear stethoscopes? It's the same kind of. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, 